0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in a different studio today is a not so different Jason Rosenbaum and
1: Joe Manis
0: and our first
2: Illinois guest. Woo-hoo. Congressman John Shimkus, I, I am psyched about this show because people who know me know that I am an Illinois native at heart. I'll granted it's the northern suburbs of Chicago, so that really isn't Illinois, but it counts to me. So yeah, the, and yeah, Jason It's also the other bro- world, yeah.
1: Yeah. and Jason also brought in a ton of cookies. And I've had one; it's very good.
2: Shemkes. So, <laughs> as 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 our guests, as as our listeners know, it's tradition for me to bring in cookies for any federal guest. So again, Lacey Clay, Jason Smith, Roy Blunt. Our Bill Enyard, come on down, <laughs> you get cookies. All right. Well,
0: that, that's plenty of reason to make the trip. <laughs> so we were talking before before we started the show a little bit about your district. Tell us, you know, what, what all does it encompass? It's pretty... This is how quality. I usually yeah.
3: explain it. Um, there's a town, an Illinois town on the Illinois-Indiana border called Danville, Illinois. It's mm-hmm. about two-thirds up the uh, state line, uh, the home of former Speaker of the House Joe Cannon. Correct. so that's uh that's kind of the northernmost part. then I go all the way down the illinois Indiana border to metropolis, Illinois, which is the home of Superman very good <laughs> see? and then I go from the east from a town called Casey, Illinois, which has the world's largest I don't know that <laughs> wind chimes oh. and recently, and I helped measure for this for the Guinness Book of World Record, the world's largest. Golf tea is there.
1: Wow.
3: How big? It is big. <laughs> it
1: is big. It's <laughs>
2: right. probably the size of a Lincoln then it, times
3: two. Then it goes all the way to really the outskirts of the St. Louis area in my hometown of Collinsville, which has the world's largest
2: ketchup bottle. There you go. See, I wow. knew that. So.
3: And right in the middle is the town of Effingham, which has a very large...
2: Population of men. Well,
1: <laughs> it's an interchange. It, it
2: has a very large cross. Oh, oh yes, yes, oh, yeah. the cross. I've I, seen that driving to Indiana. Yeah, because I'm
1: from Indiana, so I did not
0: do very well in your in your trivia. I got <laughs> well, like 50. Now, every, since <laughs>
2: I'm on this podcast,
3: everyone will now know. Yeah, okay, I mean,
1: well, what's the geographic? I mean, the mile-wise. I mean, your uh, district well, is huge.
3: Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just all I know is it. I probably sometimes I have to drive three hours to get to Danville, or two and a half hours to get to Metropolis, and you know two and a half hours to get to Lawrenceville. So it, there's a lot of driving. We I have a great office staff, great schedulers. We try to f- efficiently use that time. There are times in this new district that I have to spend the night on the road. I'll do an evening event or two, spend the night, and then do a morning till noon event, and then try to get home. Wow. So not only do I have to live in D.C., sometimes I have to be on the road.
1: So is there a lot of divergent interest between the different parts of your district because it spans so much rural, suburban, urban?
3: Um, I think uh, I get asked that a lot. I think it's very homogeneous. I think it's small-town, rural, agriculture, uh, agricultural, um, uh, conservative, socially, fiscally um, – you know, it's in a part of the country that they don't uh, know, they know they're not going to get a lot from the federal government. They don't ask for a lot. So uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, just rural America.
2: So so tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into politics. If I'm not mistaken, you went to West Point and were in the, the U.S. Army before, and you were also Madison County Treasurer before you went into Congress. So tell me a little bit about that trajectory so you got to the point where you're in the House of Representatives.
3: I was born and raised in Collinsville. So uh, I, was, I was at a Collinsville High School class this morning. Um, went to West Point, served uh, four years, got my degree, five years in the Army, okay. three years in West Germany as an infantry officer. And that kind of we're going to talk about Ukraine later on. Yes. But that yeah. does segue into yeah. my passion for Eastern European countries. Um, the, um, I left the uh, military to become a high school teacher. I got asked to return to the St. Louis area to teach at a small Lutheran high school. What subject? Well, I ended up teaching government history. Ah, appropriate. Good, appropriate. At uh, Metro East Lutheran High School, which is in Edwardsville. It's just down the road from the new Edwardsville High School there. I did that for four years. And when I got involved, I, when I got back, I started getting involved in, in politics. Uh, walked into the Republican headquarters. There's not a lot of Republicans at this time in Madison County. No. So they were very... Uh, Welcoming to me, and uh-huh. I became a precinct committeeman. Ran for county board and lost. Ran for township trustee, got elected. Then I quit the uh, teaching job and campaigned full time for treasurer in um, in nineteen. That would be uh, nineteen ninety, and got elected. It was now, kind of a shocker. As an as-, <laughs> as an aside,
2: I was actually just at the Madison County Administration Building. It is one of the nicest administrative buildings I've ever seen, especially the the place where, I guess, they have their commission meetings. Is there any coincidence that they have such a nice headquarters, or is it just they know how to build good committee rooms?
3: Well, I was fortunate that that building was already planned and almost under construction when I got elected, so I just kind of moved into Mm -hmm. what was planned. What what I like, uh, the fact, is that they were able then to keep the old courthouse. If you know rural America and... We used to have some great, beautiful old courthouses for those counties who kept it. Now there's some who just tore theirs down, put more modern things. Probably in the 50s and 60s that aren't really that pretty. Yeah. We still have a really nice courthouse. Yes,
1: you do. Yeah. I'm a big courthouse aficionado, by the way.
3: (laughs) And and then you have the administration building right across the plaza. So I think it goes well. And Edgsville's the the, the the county seat and. With the university there, it's uh, it's a nice it's a nice community.
2: Now, now tell us how you kind of got involved in federal politics. If I'm not mistaken, you had run for Congress before you had won, or am I mistaken on you that? You are correct. Yeah. Um, good research been done. <laughs> Wikipedia um, is a great thing, <laughs> by the way. Well, I
3: ran in '92 after a redistricting year, uh-huh. um, and I ran against now Senator Durbin uh that was not a good year uh for republicans uh, having uh
1: well it wasn't a good for republicans almost anywhere in 1992
3: yeah because i mean that was a clinton the first clinton first elect wave. and a yeah. uh, wave and but i did for a guy who was running against a, a pretty powerful member of congress and an incumbent even in those days um uh 57 43 on a that's clinton not bad so then, ninety four, I got reelected as county treasurer because I was the only Republican in the courthouse at that time. Mm-hmm. So I really had, to, and then my first child was born. And then ninety six, then Congressman Durbin ran for Paul Simon Senate seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got asked to look at it again, which is much better than saying I'd like to look at it again because then <laughs> then you engender more support. Had a. F- five-member primary. I won that by, I think, over 50% of the vote. And then a very, very, one of the closest races in the nation in 96 against now-returned uh, State Rep Jay Hoffman. Yes. Uh, Conservative Democrat uh, on kind of social and guns issues. that That's big in southern Illinois. Um, and only 1,200 votes. So yeah. it was uh, declared victory at 3 a.m. in the morning and uh, held the seat ever since.
2: So does, so now now that you're in Congress, what, what committees do you sit on, and what are kind of the issues that you focus on and have been focusing on for the last uh, decade or more?
3: I've been fortunate to to get placed early on the Energy and Commerce Committee. Constitutionally, it, it you can make the constitutional argument, Interstate Commerce Clause. So uh, when you have goods and services flow across state lines, we have jurisdiction. Uh, but it's kind of morphed into enter, an energy subcommittee, a health subcommittee, uh, telecommunications that deals with areas like right. broadcasts right. and <laughs> and internet and all this other stuff uh, there's an environment in the economy which i co-chair that's really the trash committee so I do with nuclear waste and and other issues uh, uh, then we also have uh, a um, a consumer protection subcommittee and and an oversight and investigation subcommittee so my expertise is now in Washington if you if members have expertise is in, in those areas because I've been dealing with them for now I'm on my eighteenth year so at least I can speak to broadcast issues. I can right. speak to spectrum or or energy portfolios and the like.
1: Now you also though have a connection to foreign affairs. You want to explain that?
3: Well and it's one it's it yeah and it's not a there is a formal position, but it's uh it's only because I've kind of volunteered to do this uh I'm a delegate on the NATO parliamentary assembly which is a a an international organization that's found in federal law that we need to have representation when there was a NATO if you under again looking at the constitution um the president has two responsibilities he's the chief executive officer mm-hmm. and he's the head of state part of his head of state responsibilities is appoint ambassadors to do foreign policy. That's why he's talking all now. That's why he's doing most of this lead on Ukraine, because that's part of his job title as head of state. Well, legislators always don't fully trust the executive branch, right? Right. And mm-hmm. that's just the way the founding fathers designed it. So to follow on the uh, the U.S. commitments to the NATO, uh, the North Atlantic Council and NATO itself, We have like a shadow organization called the NATO Parliamentary Assembly where members from legislative branches from all the NATO countries and the aspirants meet regularly, um, officially three times a year, and then in subcommittees other times, um, mostly in Europe because that's where most of the countries are, sometimes in Canada, sometimes we meet here in the United States to talk about policies of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and and uh, to make sure that the legislative branches of our governments, at least, are p- giving some input to the North Atlantic Council.
2: Now, let's transition to Ukraine, because your colleague, uh, Senator Dick Durbin, was on Meet the Press yesterday condemning this referendum in Crimea Crimea for its independence. What's kind of your take on the situation? And while I, I don't know if you know a whole lot about the sanctions that President Obama just leveled, um, what is kind of just your view of that entire situation, given your your role on the NATO uh, committee as well?
3: Well, and it, it stems from uh, I'm biased. Obviously, I've been a uh, spoke, uh, an outspoken critic of of Putin and the Russian government for for many many years, uh, and it based it, some of it's based upon my three years on the Czechoslovakian border during mm-hmm. then during the. Uh, the old days and we had fences and walls and guards and and stuff then it morphed when I got elected to a member of Congress Shimkus is ethnically Lithuanian Mm -hmm. Um, and in fact my great-grandparents immigrated from there for for economic reasons Um, and the Lithuanian community kind of adopted me and asked me to help them make their cause that they wanted they were recently independent uh, and they wanted to make their cause for NATO membership and membership in the in the European Union, for the same reasons right. that Ukraine wants it. Mm-hmm. They, they want the peace and security and economic development of free societies versus a totalitarian regime, even though uh, Russia portrays itself as a you know a federation. Um, so the um, so that's why I've been involved. I've been very involved with that. I've been fortunate to observe a. An old, uh, the, one of the stolen presidential elections in Belarus, which is still under the the Russian sphere. Yeah, I remember. That. I just most recently uh, uh, observed the presidential election in the country of Georgia. Georgia has two of its pro- provinces occupied by the Russians. Uh, the most recent is 2008. Any observer of uh, Eastern Europe, other old captive nations, this this thing w- should not have shocked anybody. Uh, it's it's unfortunate. Uh, but uh russia 's goal is to expand its sphere of influence and and try to reclaim whatever what's whatever 's left of their old empire and the The committees of free democracies need to s- stand up
0: well what should the response be?
3: Well, I think the response is now going to be uh, uh there's going to be economic sanctions, and I think the EU is going to roll out theirs today, too. I think in the big picture, Russia is harmed by this financially. But, see, I don't think it matters to, to Putin because they're oligarchs and they're, they're uh, centralized control. And so he, his lifestyle is not going to change. The lifestyle of the average Russian who may be – you know um, uh, their income is based upon trade between a Ukraine or the European Union. They're the ones who are going to be – gonna be harmed. I think I think the next uh, response should be from the from the from NATO itself and to offer these countries like Georgia and Moldova and the Ukraine what's called membership action plan where they officially start going down the path and transform transforming their societies, which means rule of law uh, military defense, uh, m- more cooperation, uh, uh, you know, a, f- a free society capitalist type system so that they could maybe one day be offered membership in the NATO.
1: I mean, how do – I mean, there are, there has been some saber rattling going on on this end, you know, in the last few weeks. But then some people are like, well, realistically, what can the United States do? It's not like we can send troops in or that people would want. Right, troops be sending in. How do you see what should be said or I mean are sanctions the most that we can do right now or or what you just talked about, but is there anything beyond that, or do people just have to kind of watch and see where where Putin goes? Is this really the design of the Russian government, or is this the design of putin
3: well i th- uh, the, answering the, the the last question first, I think that Putin is strengthened by this nationalistic fervor of reclaiming the empire and moving into the Crimea. Now, Crimea is different than the rest of the eastern part of Ukraine, which may be Russian speaking, but are more sympathetic to Correct. Ukraine. I was just gonna say versus I, Crimea, which is Russian. Yeah, Russian. You know? yeah,
2: Crimea
1: <laughs> had been had been given to. And Ukraine, like 50 years ago.
3: Right, at the Istanbul uh, whatever yeah. summit, or I'm not sure it was a summit, but Istanbul, where they actually sign and say, we're going to let you have Ukraine part of the, or the Crimea Peninsula.
2: Obviously, as Joe kind of alluded to, the chances of us going militarily here are pretty much zero because, you know, Russia has nuclear weapons pointed at us. But is there kind of a disconnect or maybe some – differences in response to, let's say, if what happened in Libya than what hap- is happening in Russia? Because, you know, when there's human rights abuses going on in Libya, we essentially bombed Tripoli. But when we get into a situation where one of the bigger co- countries is apparently, you know, engaging in human rights abuses, it seems like our course of action is a lot more limited. Is there a disconnect there or is that just reality geo- geopolitically?
3: I think it's geopolitical reality but I would also speak to a couple of things. First of all, before we would do anything, I, I think you really got to talk to the Ukrainian government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we just can't make assumptions. Hey, Correct. we know what's best. If, because they may not want military U.S. forces or European forces right. on their soil.
1: Well, Especially when they're changing leaders right now.
3: Right. So that that's issue one. Uh, the um, uh, strength, and uh, this is timely because of the president's just, Rolled out budget and um, the military's is is on the uh, cutting uh, axe as far as spending. We do spend a lot for our military; it's almost uh, half of, of our discretionary budget. Uh, but is this world a safer world or a more dangerous place? And and I think now you, there there's probably some reevaluation of those numbers based upon not just this Crimea thing, but the how. Um, uh, braggadocio Putin has been and, and also the discussions of, of the nuclear arsenal and all this pretty scary talk. So uh, it does show the importance of, of being militarily strong.
2: Now, if I'm not mistaken, what you said kind of at the onset of this topic is that United States and the European allies should lay the groundwork for those th- three countries you mentioned, Moldova, Georgia, and Ukraine, to be part of NATO. How do you think Russia would react to something like that, and would that cause political blowback that a country that's literally on its border might join a, an alliance that they've spewed for suspicion for decades?
3: I know exactly how they respond because you have other countries, uh, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia, who are right on the Russian border. Uh, I think uh, timeliness is everything, or and the fact that – I've been in many discussions where the, the Russians and the Western Europeans, I want to include those in this debate, uh, were concerned about NATO going up to the Russian border. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has happened in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Now I would argue that it's done it would happen because they came in on and around uh September eleventh, right after that. I think there was other threats, uh you had different leadership in 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 Moscow, although
1: and Putin was still behind the scenes,
3: he was still behind the scenes, but not strong enough to stop this expansion in the baltics, so they've lost that answering your question, I think they would not be very happy with it but um the because once you are officially a member of nato that 's why I use the term. Membership action plan. Membership action plan is not membership. But it is a signal that if they transform, uh, that, that we should consider their, their invitation to join NATO. But then you have the real deal, right? Mm-hmm. Why, why can Russia go into Georgia? Because they're little countries that can't defend themselves against a big, uh, monstrous neighbor. Why do they go into Ukraine? Well, because they're a, that's a little country. Um, why will not Russia go into Turkey? Why won't they go into Greece? Or why will they not go into the Baltics? Well, because they're now protected under the NATO umbrella and the Art- Article 5 of NATO.
1: Now, you know, Russia's big thing in the last couple of decades has been like the oil, its oil and gas reserves. And, I mean, the free market from that standpoint has really put Russia in a stronger economic position so that Putin has money to spend on this stuff. So and Until. But it also means that Europe is more reliant on the energy. So you want to talk about that a little uh, bit? I mean,
3: that's a great question because we'll move on the bill, an a, a LNG export bill. And now with uh, new gas reserves and oil, we're becoming an energy exporter. I know Lithuania has built an a LNG import terminal. They're already seeing the benefits. The ship is being moved right now from where it was built in South Korea to the Baltic Sea, which will they'll unload the LNG and put it in right. their pipelines. Uh, that has already put them in a position to negotiate even better natural gas rates with with Russia. But energy extortion, a political involvement, um, and military threats are the tools in the Russian uh, tool bag on on destabilizing their neighbors. and And the frustrating thing about this debate is both sides of the border would be better off. The average Russian, the average Ukrainian would be better off with peace and stability and the ability of free flow of goods and services. But under this regime, that's not going to happen.
2: How do you think the president has handled this situation? Uh, I I think fair. Um, it's difficult. Uh, I will
3: grant you that. I, I think when you... When you send signals, you're going to cut your military. When you, when you make proclamations of red lines, and then you don't fulfill any, any really military strength, um, I, I think he is not viewed as as a strong international leader.
1: But on the other, hand, one thing I was curious about was, um, and and I think you you may be very well be right, even among other countries when they're looking at President Obama right now. But on the other hand, does it? Weaken the GOP's case when they blast him for not being a strong leader yet, they turn around and go after him for unilaterally doing this, that, or the other on domestic. I mean,
2: like Syria, for example. Yeah,
1: do they need to have more of a message? Either he's a strong leader or he's not. Yeah. You know
2: what
3: I mean? I'm the first one <laughs> to make the procl- make proclamation that we're schizophrenic <laughs> and, <laughs> and inconsistent. So, well, uh, mean, you know, I, <laughs> breaking news. I the have <laughs> even more, worse trouble. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, so I, I, I do think different regions of the world are different. Um, I never spoke against the, the Libya activity. I noticed that, yes. Um, Syria, Syria and very difficult to get to, and I was very concerned that we would be drawn into something there that we couldn't get out of. I did speak against that. But what do we do per- with Iran? Well, uh, yeah, we're concerned of their nuclear arsenal and what their nuclear arsenal to be in the destabilizing fact, not just to the state of Israel, but all the Arab countries around there.
1: Well, and the fact that they t- have close ties to Russia, which is one of the reasons I'm bringing this back, yeah. is that Iran and Russia have somewhat close ties. So are there concerns about that? Right. That, that, that there, there could be blowback from this situation? Right dealing with uh, Iran.
0: You are correct. We should probably transition to our next topic. Uh, you've been telling us a little bit about a toxic chemical spill. Um, give our listeners a brief recap of what's going on
3: there. Well, not to spill, but there's been spills. And so it, it does segue into how do we know what we have and how do we know those chemicals are safe? And it goes back to a law that was passed in 1976. Uh, now, as I was telling council High School today, I visit them I was in that classroom where I was speaking in 1976 with my silk shirt and my plaid bell-bottoms and my platform shoes. Not a pretty (laughs) sight. So just transition that to a federal law that was passed based upon then-known science versus today's known science, and also handling and exposure and the like. Uh, Everyone would argue we have to update this. So we've got a bill called Chemicals and Commerce Act. I think the word was well taken. You know, in this studio, uh, the chemical manufacturing industry would say 95% of everything here was touched by chemical manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, does that mean that it's all toxic and, and we're all going to eventually, you know, die because of our contacts? Sure yeah, course hope not. not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course not. But should we know what we have and should we prioritize that and should we then use sound science to de- determine – uh, if it's safe, let people know it's safe. If it needs to be specially handled, make sure that people know it's specially handled. If it's highly toxic. Can we eventually move to another chemical to replace it? That's kind of the basis of the legislation. Very excited about it. I'm working closely with some Democrats on the other side. Uh, there is a there is a there is a bipartisan bill in the Senate. It was Lautenberg before he passed, yeah. and it was Vitter, David Vitter, and now it's Vitter and Udall. Mm-hmm. That kind of started Udall? the ball. Which Udall? It is Tom Udall okay. from New Mexico. Correct. And that started the ball moving forward that there is some middle ground on this. Uh, we've taken that and done a little more due diligence and cleaned up the language, uh, but we need a big bipartisan vote on the floor to, to wake up uh, Senator Barbara Boxer that we do have a bipartisan bill. And uh, that's what we're trying. to Why
2: why is she important in this? I take it she doesn't like. Well,
3: there's an issue of, again, going back to the energy and commerce and the debate of interstate interstate commerce. Um, And there are some states who think they're smarter than the average bear. And they they think that they're smart enough to determine what chemicals are safe and not safe for the public use. So they'll pass state specific prohibitions. Which then make it very difficult for inter, inter, interstate commerce, especially in these type of goods, mm-hmm. to to happen.
1: Are you referring to California?
3: That could be one of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: it happens where, to be the state where, where Senator Boxer, Boxer is from. from. <laughs> but there are
1: others that have
3: moved in some direction. So uh, this, so our argument is let's let's make sure the EPA. You know, I'm a conservative Republican. Every time I say. Right. You know that, I could get a lot of blowback. But uh, let's make sure that they can—they um, do the job they're tasked to do to identify the chemicals, prioritize them, and tell us which ones are safe so that we can use them in commerce and tell, them, tell us which ones need to watch out for.
0: What types of chemicals are we talking about here? All
3: of them. That's the problem with the 76 bill. There's only about, we think, 2,800 in commerce today. There's 200 we think are really bad. Right. Uh, there's 80,000 on the list. Mm. And the problem is that law was dysfunctional where there's no ability to check the ones that that currently on the list were already grandfathered. So we need to go back and start looking at these grandfathered chemicals.
2: So let's transition into the politically speaking speaking podcast. I've said that like six times, and it sounds terrible each time. (laughs) But um, as an Illinois native, this is a fun fact. From the day I was born to the day I graduated high school, Illinois had a Republican governor um, from 1984 to 2002. And then 2002, our good friend Rod Blagojevich won the governorship, and then it's been a Democratic governor right. uh, domination ever since. In, in fact, in 2006, even though Rod Blagojevich had a 30 percent or below approval rating, he still won the governorship by 10 percentage points. So that kind of signals how uh, bad your party has done <laughs> on this front in the last – 12 to something years. But this year, there's a little bit more hope because Pat Quinn, uh, Blagojevich's successor after Blagojevich went to jail, and an Illinois tradition, of course, um, also is very unpopular for various reasons. In fact, I saw a poll where he actually had sub-30 approval ratings. But I guess in typical Illinois Republican form, there's a Pretty uh, crowded primary,
1: which is tomorrow, which, which is Tuesday, which is tomorrow
2: between Bruce Rounder or, or a, today when people are yeah, listening. Man. Either way, Bruce Rounder, a, a Chicago businessman, uh, Bill Brady, the 2010 nominee from who's from Bloomingdale, uh, Kirk Dillard, who was also ran in 2010, I believe he's from suburban Chicago, and uh, Treasurer Dan Rutherford, who's had some issues, so to speak, lately. So you haven't endorsed anybody in have this. Not. What's kind of your thought about? You know this primary, and kind of whether you think Republicans are going to break this streak of futility this year.
3: Well, uh, what where the race is now at is it's a two-man race. It's either uh, Bruce Rauner, who's a wealthy fund manager who's been fund personally funding his campaign, uh, running on uh, trying to be like a Scott Walker, a yeah. Mitch Daniels, or, yes, or John the, Kasich, yes. going after waste fraud abuse, and, government pensions, and unions. And, and unions. Um, and and so he has spent a lot of money, having a lot of money. He got out early. He's been able to hold, I think, his lead. And I think most people think, in the end of the day, he's our nominee. Uh, Dillard's closing the gap. He's a state senator uh, from the suburbs. Uh, conservative, but also it's kind in of, your neck of the woods. Yeah. So you know all those more moderate well, guys. Well, I'm from,
2: I'm from Mark Kirk's former congressional uh, district, and I would whatever. say that's like the last bastion of liberal to moderate Republicanism yeah. in the country, although uh, Schneider kind of— Ended that Republican right. uh, uh, in 2012, but continue as you were saying.
3: But so I, I think it's a two-man race now. Uh, I think Dillard is closing. It's just interesting who I hear from folks now that they got to make a cast a vote, and people are calling me and asking me. I'm not, I'm not telling them how I voted, but uh, <laughs> and you did already vote, but I did. I voted early on Saturday, which I love. I'll be on the road all day Tuesday, so uh, uh, early voting uh, was, was a great opportunity, um, and and the uh, the the challenge will be oh, Quinn is is really disliked in the state uh, he is a populist though. Uh, right. Joe's probably followed his career and he can uh, he does have that populist message but the state of Illinois is in disarray financially um, and it's it's really at a bigger crisis than a lot of people believe and I, it's hard for me to say since I'm in Washington, mm-hmm. but we're sure. equally dysfunctional <laughs> bud- budgetarily. So, so I can really call out Illinois because, based <laughs> yeah. upon uh, experience, so.
2: understood. Now we've had a couple of instances of self-funding businessmen run for office in Missouri. We had John Bruner, who lost the U.S. Senate primary to our good friend Todd Akin, and we had Dave, Dave Spence, Spence, who right. actually became the gubernatorial nominee against Jay Nixon, and both were able to fund their own campaigns and spend a lot of money, but. Both of them didn't win. And Rauner, while I I suppose he doesn't have a voting record, which I think probably hurt Brady in 2010, is he going to kind of suffer from that same kind of problems that self-funding candidates have, especially with him? I I believe the Sun-Times reported that he said he was in the 0.01 percent or something like that, and that might have stung him a little bit. Could he fall into some of those same traps? Yes. I mean, he'll be –
3: I call it he'll get Romneyed. Right? When you have a lot of money and you spread it around a lot, there'll be some businesses that you were successful in raising up. There'll be some businesses that you were involved with that failed. Um, it's just a difficult... Ellen White really also has a history of not having rich guys get in the race and not yeah. getting across the finish line. And we
2: could... Al Holfield, mm-hmm. and you could just yes, go and name, name and name them. Jack him. Ryan right, in yeah. 2004. <laughs> I guess, mean, yeah. that's how we got Alan Keyes to run for a U.S. Senate and, seat. And, and,
1: and ha- oh, that's how Obama got got in the Senate. But so when you – does Rauner also mobilize uh, if he wins? Does that mobilize the labor forces in Illinois and kind of – who may not be thrilled with Quinn, especially over some of the pension cuts? Does that kind of set that up as well? Do they see then as well – I mean, Republicans managed to counter uh, labor power in Wisconsin – uh, Michigan and Indiana, notably, I'm talking about these, these right, three right. neighbors, uh, forgetting Ohio, but just talking about those. So uh, does that set up this kind of get more of a uh, labor versus corporate struggle? And does that have anything to do with why um, Rauner's uh, closest rival is closing the gap a bit. Or is there well, other not other only, things that's
3: well, really Illinois is a bizarre state. <laughs> so that is the threat that organized labor has been telling a lot of elected officials if Rounder is elected we are all in and it's gonna hurt people down the down, down the line. Um the uh the whole the whole issue uh, the, a lot of Dillard's Financing is coming from organized labor. Yes,
1: well, yeah, I was that's, say he's that's, close so, to well, that's labor. what I'm getting into. Yeah, yeah.
3: so not only the, the tax on Rounder, but also the positive uh, had, had, uh and so that's where I think he's closing the gap. Uh, I, I do think there are people worried about the down ballot issues, but I think the uh, laborers might have other uh, having a, the state in as governor is, is a big thing for them, but. I've got to believe losing the U.S. Senate is a bigger threat. So, but and, and and so money may go in that direction or other than in this race.
2: To help Pat Quinn. But just kind of stepping back a little bit, as, as somebody who has followed Illinois' troubles, because maybe from a personal level, could a Republican governor really make a difference in the situation there? It seems like they're in such financial straits. I mean, I guess Indiana and Wisconsin are, are have ads trying to get businesses there. I'm, I'm guessing Missouri doesn't do that because – Nixon doesn't want to upset a Democratic governor, but could, well, what what difference would a Republican governorship make, especially if the legislature is overwhelmingly Democratic and could override any of his vetoes?
3: Well, we have a supermajority right now, right. And, mm-hmm. and so um, the bottom line is it would make it – still going to be very, very difficult, but for – if you want even a seat at the table, you, you need to have the Republican governor, mm-hmm. even just to have someone there. Um, so that's that's the counter argument. If we we've got to get the fiscal position, so let them pass something and let them move it through with the supermajority. But my guess is going to be a stronger Republican year. We're going to we're going to have pickups across the board. We'll have pickups in the state legislature and the state senate. Not enough to take the majority, but enough to adjust the 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 major the supermajorities on the veto. Do
2: you, think, Do you see
1: oh, a replay? Re, I'm sorry. Do you see a replay of 2010, or will it be different and how?
3: Um. Well, 2010 was huge. Was huge. Year. Just what 20 like 2006 was a huge Democrat yeah. year. So, uh, uh, my point is, I th- it, this is really all dependent upon health care reform, and I think it just keeps going down the road like it's a flat tire. Right? It's still going to move forward, but it's not going to move at fifty, sixty, seven miles an hour. Hence, people are going to be disillusioned about it. It's uh, midterm of the second term of a president. That's a down year anyway. I, I just think that they're going to have a hard time turning out their vote.
1: One last thing: Would you? I mean, you're a congressman now. Are you looking ahead to maybe either running for a higher state office yourself or for Senate down the road?
3: No. I well, you, you, politically, you never. You you talk to politicians all the time. You never say never, right? You they're never because you guys will <laughs> play that back to us when we make <laughs> when we when we change our mind. Yeah. So you you never say never, but. When you represent 33 counties and you have to fly back and forth to Washington and then you still have a a 14-year-old home and a wife who will still welcome you home, (laughs) uh, that's about for me to have to do anything bigger, I have spent a lot of time in Chicago and that's a tough thing it's a to scary do. Place, man. <laughs> you know the Cubs are up there, and you know hey, I don't no want to get involved white with uh, that. <laughs> That's <laughs> the easy Chicago out. Don't ask me. I'm a White Sox fan. So. My wife, who's a Southsider, is a Cubs fan for some oh, yeah. reason,
2: but you know she's uh, has uh, misplaced priorities. Yeah, it just doesn't work.
0: <laughs> All right, well, we'll close it off there. As a quick programming note, um, we're posting this on Tuesday, but we will have another show on Thursday, and that is with St. Louis County Executive Charlie Dooley.
2: It, it's a double dose of politically speaking. Yes, you're welcome.
0: Uh, you're welcome.
1: Yeah, we I mean, can listen online or th- on iTunes, yeah. and uh, we're very excited. Uh, this is great. We're really excited to have the congressman today.
0: Yes. So to close this out here, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at CSMcDaniel. Jason? Jay Rosenbaum. Joe? Uh,
1: J. Manis. It's J. M. A. N. N. I. E. S.
0: Do you have a Twitter account? A Twitter handle? I do, but I have no idea what it is. So, uh, <laughs> An honest comment. You know, house.gov backslash
3: Shimkus. Go to is the it, website. Type, oh.
2: Is it at Rep Johns? Yeah, Shimkes it is. That's or right. something. Yeah. I, very. I, uh, just type brave, in G O O G L E. I've gotten so that. many of them wrong lately that I just want to make sure that I, I actually got it right. That's okay. <laughs> this is great. It's, it's
0: actually Rep Shimkus. Very oh. good. Rep Shimkus. Very clever. Very good. Very clever. (laughs) Well, we'll be back next week. Until then, so so long. So long.